Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station Podcast, a 15 to 20 minute show about learning the Rust programming language. This is Episode 7, Testify. The big news as I release this is that Rust 1.5 came out this week. From the perspective of other languages, that seems a little crazy. Since I started this podcast, we've had two point releases, 1.4 and 1.5, and 1.3 came out shortly before I recorded the introductory episode. Rust is keeping up with its promise of stability without stagnation, and frankly, it's really fun to watch. One of the great things about the release trains model pioneered by Chrome and since then adopted by many other projects, including Rust, is that you get forward motion frequently, although the size of the changes in any given release may be relatively small. Along those lines, Rust 1.5 isn't a big release in terms of features. For the most part, it was just fixing a bunch of little things in the language design and updating some tooling around the language. Specifically, Cargo got a new install command, which lets you install binaries with Cargo, and a bunch of the standard library functionality was stabilized. In particular, file system and file path handlers were stabilized, and so those are now available on the main release, not just in nightly Rust. In practice, this means that if your code worked last week, it will continue to work this week. It will just compile a bit faster and you'll have some new tools to use. That's pretty cool. Only one other thing particularly caught my attention in the last couple weeks. That thing, though, was pretty interesting. Sean Griffin, a guy who is currently employed to work on Rails, and particularly on its SQL tooling, has released the first version of Diesel, which is a Rust SQL ORM and query builder. My initial impressions are that it is really, really interesting. Uh, Griffin's goal was to build an easy-to-use Rust tool for dealing with SQL but still providing the really strong type safety guarantees that make Rust so attractive in the first place. You can listen to Sean talk about that a bit on episodes 31 and 32 of the Bike Shed podcast. I'll link it in the show notes. Now, onward. It's time to talk about tests. Why? Well, because tests help us know whether our code is broken. A good test suite gives you two big things. First, it tells you whether your code does what you think it should presently. It can't do that exhaustively, but it can do that. Second, it lets you make changes and tell whether your code still does what you think it should. Importantly, to the extent that you've written a good set of tests, it can do those things far more rigorously than you can. If you try to repeat a set of tests manually, you will forget things. But the computer won't forget a test in your test suite. And so if you catch a new bug, you can just add a test to the suite. And when you fix that bug, you can be sure that if you introduce another thing that causes that particular bug to show back up in the future, you will know your test suite will catch it. And that is incredibly valuable. The qualifier, though, your tests can't guarantee the correctness of your program. All they can do is help you be more sure that it is correct. If there are enough tests and they're of the right sort, they can help you be sure that even if things are broken, which, let's be honest, lots of times our code is broken and sometimes we even know about it, but we can then guarantee that it stays broken in the same way between changes, and that's valuable too. Now, within the context of testing, there are two big categories of tests, unit tests and integration tests. 
Happily, Rust has support for both. But first, a note on how unit tests in particular might look a little different in Rust than in other languages you're used to. Specifically, in dynamically typed languages like Python, Ruby, or JavaScript, one of the major functions of unit tests is to verify that functions treat their arguments correctly, including if you hand them invalid types, and that they return not only the right values, but even the right kinds of values. You don't want a function which is supposed to convert from a string to a number to hand back a string, for example. Many of those kinds of things we don't have to worry about testing directly. They're taken care of by the compiler itself in Rust, and for that matter, other statically typed languages. That's true of Java and C, too. This is one reason that test-driven development is much more popular in languages like Python, Ruby, or JavaScript. Another, of course, is simple history. Unit testing as a practice simply developed well after C was entrenched, and the tooling around it has never been as good for C as a result. Many modern languages, though, like Rust or Elixir, have built-in support for testing, and that makes it much likelier that developers will write tests than if they have to go use a third-party framework. Those third-party frameworks do exist for writing unit tests in C, and if you're writing C, you should be using them. It's helpful. But again, it's wonderful to have it in the language, and it makes it much likelier that many more developers will write tests because it has language-level support. Even though static compilation with a strong type system does solve that first set of problems, getting your types right, it doesn't tell you whether the values you got out of a function were correct. Knowing that you did in fact get a number out of a function which converts strings to numbers is great, but did you get the right number back? Testing that sort of thing requires that we actually call the function with an input whose result we know ahead of time and that we see what we get. In other words, unit tests. So in Rust, you probably won't find yourself writing quite as many tests as you would in Ruby or Python or JavaScript, but you do still need them. The compiler doesn't guarantee anything about your algorithm or your logic. All it can guarantee is whether you handled your types correctly. That's valuable, but it's not sufficient. Now, there are three basic kinds of tests in Rust. Test functions, documentation tests, and integration tests. In addition, Nightly Rust supports benchmarking, which is a very different kind of test from the first three, but it is an important one, and so we'll discuss each of these in turn. In order to talk about testing, though, we need to talk first about a set of flags we will be using around the modules and around the functions we will use for those tests. These flags are what Rust calls attributes. Attributes are special flags set to tell the compiler to do something with a given definition. These can go on modules or structs or enums or functions. Right now, attributes are defined by the compiler and only the compiler at least in stable Rust. In Nightly Rust, you can define them yourself using compiler plugins, but compiler plugins are an unstable feature. The Rust core team hasn't decided on the best way to handle them going forward, so they can still change, so they're behind feature flags. Now, what are these attributes used for? Lots of things, actually. As we will discuss in a minute, they can be used to specify tests. However, this is far from the only thing we use them for in Rust. For example, the derive attribute can be used with structures or enums to create default debug and display formats so that if you want to print out the value of a given structure, you don't have to go in and manually define how to display it. 
Similarly, the configuration attribute can be used to specify configuration rules for modules, and this gets used by Cargo as well as by Rust-C and Rust-Stock under the covers. This lets you do things like specify what target to build a given function for. If you need to build functions one way on Windows and another way on OS X, you can do that using the configuration attribute. We also have feature attributes. As I noted a minute ago, some features in Rust are behind feature flags. This is really useful when dealing with nightly Rust builds. There are some things that the Rust core team has said, this just isn't ready even to be on by default. We have it in master, but we're not planning to ship it yet, so we have it behind a feature flag, and you have to set the feature attribute for that flag to on to use it even in nightly Rust. This is a huge part of making the release train process work and it's handy. And as I implied talking about both the configuration and feature attributes, some attributes take arguments, which allow you to further specify the behavior of the attribute. You get the idea. There is a lot more we can say about attributes, and in the future we will, but that's enough to get started for talking about tests. The simplest kinds of tests are just test functions. Functions marked with the test attribute are treated in a unique way by the compiler. When you run cargo test on the command line, cargo builds them in and executes each function marked with the attribute and indicates whether the test returns successfully. Those functions, though, are never compiled into your normal builds, release, or debug. This is great. It means you can write your tests right next to the code they check without impacting the size of the executable you distribute at all. Now, within tests, you can also use a set of dedicated macros, things like assert or assert equal, to indicate how you expect something to behave. And if a given function should panic, you can set the should panic attribute on the test. You can supply arguments to should panic to define what kinds of failures you expect in a given test. Or you can set the ignore attribute to tell Cargo, usually ignore this test and then override it by passing an extra argument to cargo test. So for example, if you have a test that runs a particularly long time and you only want to run it sometimes, you can set a, the ignore attribute on it and simply move on the rest of the time. When you run cargo test on any of these kinds of test functions, you'll get a display indicating how many tests passed, how many failed, which ones failed, and where they failed. This gives you useful information right out of the gate so that you can go back and say, here are the modules I wrote, here are the functions I wrote, here are the functions that aren't doing what I think they should be. Now, the best practice around these is to wrap tests in a module private to the containing module, and then you set the configuration test flag on the test module. What this does is let you write support functions within that test module, which are also excluded from normal builds, just like the functions marked with the test attribute are. So that's how you write these kinds of tests. What would you use them for? Well, this is where you put unit tests. Within the test module, you can verify that the various functions you call work as expected. You can compare the results of any given function with their expected results. And this is particularly powerful when you do combine it with Rust's expressive type system. You can, for example, test functions to be sure that you actually get both the right enumerated value and the right value within that enumeration from a function which returns an enumerated type. For the simplest example, you can just check that calling a function which returns an option gives you either a none or a sum with a value in it, and you can also check that the value in that sum is the right value. Now, the second type of test we have available is a documentation test. Like Python and Elixir, Rust can run any samples you include in your documentation strings. 
In fact, Cargo Test will do exactly this automatically. And this gets you something a little bit distinct from what unit tests give you. It helps you make sure that your documentation itself is correct and up to date. If you change an API, but you forget to update the comments on the module to reflect that, your users will hate you. Or they won't because you ran Cargo Test, and Cargo Test will give you a failure if you do that, and it will point you to the doc string. Note, this only works for library crates, not binary crates. And in fact, that limitation is true of tests in general. I haven't yet had a chance to look up the reason why that is, so if you know, please tell me. In any case, any and all code samples included in your documentation blocks will be executed. Conventionally, we go ahead and mark off a section with a first-level header titled examples for these kinds of things, but Cargo Test will catch and run them regardless. If you want to turn off a given test, for example, because it is supposed to fail, you're demonstrating something that won't work, you can just add ignore to the very start of the code block, and Cargo Test will ignore it. On which note, thanks to GitHub user RainDev, who submitted a pull request for the show notes for episode 5, which did just that for some of the negative examples. Things I meant to fail, and which were causing cargo tests to fail, because I didn't have ignore on them. Now, that covers most of the kinds of things we might want to do with the code inside a given module. What about testing the module itself, though? Testing that all the pieces we've written work together the way we think. For this, we have integration tests. And the best way to do integration testing is to come at it just like we were any other external user of our library. That is, import the pieces we want to test and check that they work as expected from outside. To do this, we can create another library type crate, by convention we call it test, and within that crate we add functions marked with that same test attribute and run cargo test on our test crate. These kinds of integration tests can help us be sure that our public API behaves as we expect, that its pieces work together the way they should, and in fact that our public API itself is actually what we think it is. On that last note, for example, if we forget to make a given module or function public with the pub keyword, an integration test that tried to use that module would fail. And in point of fact, the test crate in that case wouldn't fail a test, it would fail to compile. Either way, we would get the information we need. An actual example might help. Imagine you were writing yet another markdown parser. There are so many out there, but you want your own. Well, you might want to have parse and render functions, and within your unit tests, you could have lots of tests that handle specific kinds of elements, you know, emphasis and paragraphs and headings and all of that. And those unit tests would test the functions you compose together to create the actual parsing functionality. To test whether a given document resulted in the output you expected, though, you would probably need a non-trivial markdown document to run through your main functions. And as with the unit tests, you would want to make sure that that high-level output was what you expected. Having a test crate would give you a straightforward way to do that. It would also help you know whether any changes you introduce broke the existing functionality, something that might be especially important if, for example, you were extending the markdown syntax. So that's integration tests. Finally, we have benchmarks. Benchmarks tell us how fast something runs. One of the most common places we see this is in comparing competing libraries, of course. Far more usefully, though, at least in my opinion, is evaluating performance-critical sections of our code. We can use benchmarking to guarantee that changes we make don't make things slow down. 
To return to that Markdown parsing example, we can see how both of these would be useful. If your library can parse Markdown twice as fast as any other Rust implementation for Markdown parsing, well, that really is useful for people to know. But at least as important, if you decide you want to add footnote support rather than supporting the original footnote-less syntax for Markdown, it is extremely helpful to know whether the additional syntax checking you have to do has a serious impact on the speed of your code. If you're suddenly taking twice as long to parse a document because you're checking for footnotes, well, you know that you've probably done something wrong in your implementation, and the benchmark will help you find what and where. It's worth note, benchmarks are currently behind a feature flag, which also means that they're only available on nightly Rust releases. If you're using a nightly build, though, you can do benchmarks by adding the feature test attribute and then adding the bench attribute to a function definition. Once you've done that, you need to include a special argument for the function, a mutable reference to a bencher type. And then within the body of the function, you call the iter method on the bencher instance with a closure that takes the functionality you want to benchmark. Don't worry, I'll have samples in the code so you can see what I mean. That's a lot to parse just hearing it. In any case, when you run cargo bench, you'll get benchmark results for that particular functionality. Again, super handy. And that's a wrap on testing. Hopefully, it gives you a good idea both of how we can use tests within Rust and why tests are useful and valuable not only in Rust, but in general. Next time, we'll take an introductory look at Rust's generic types and its traits, which together are the foundation of truly expressive programming in Rust. Now, I say we'll take an introductory look because I expect a full discussion of either of those topics, much less both of them, first of all to take more than one week, and secondly to be a bit beyond my experience with Rust yet. Still, it should be fun. Thanks to Chris Palmer for sponsoring the show this month. You can see the list of other sponsors in the show notes. And if you'd like to sponsor the show yourself, you can set up recurring donations at patreon.com slash newrustation, or you can set up one-off donations at Venmo, Dwalla, or cash.me. You can find the show notes with detailed code samples illustrating these ideas, as well as links to the things I mentioned at the start of the show at newrustation.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter or app.net at NewRustation, or you can follow me there at Chris Kreitcho. If you like the show, please rate and review it on iTunes or recommend it in your favorite podcast app to help others find it. Last but not least, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on social media, in the thread for the show on the Rust user forum at users.rustlang.org, or via email at hello at NewRustation.com. Until next time, happy coding. So in Rust, you probably won't find yourself writing as many tests as you would in Ruby or Python or Juby, Juby script. <laughs>